The text for the sermon this afternoon is the Word of God as the church has summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 22 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You find that on page 536 of the Book of Praise. In Lord's Day 22, the church confesses what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you. Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. Then after the proclamation of God's word, we will begin to respond with the singing of hymn 69, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 22 is all about our comfort. Now, perhaps that's not surprising. After all, the Catechism is often referred to as the Book of Comfort. The theme of comfort is what begins the Catechism immediately in Lord's Day 1, and that's a theme that runs throughout the whole Heidelberg Catechism. And yet, there are certain moments when the Catechism really wants to drive home the comfort for the believer, and Lord's Day 22 is one of those moments. You see it clearly because the word comfort is found in both of the questions before us this afternoon. Now, Lord's Day 22 deals with what we often call the last things. The final two articles of the Apostles' Creed are that we believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's a beautiful way for the believer to end their creed, to end their confession of faith, by looking forward and confessing that no matter what happens in this life, or even what happens in death, they still have so much comfort to hold on to. But despite that we deal here with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, you may have been surprised to notice that this Lord's Day never actually uses the word death. It speaks about what happens immediately after this life, but not once in Lord's Day 22 are you going to find the word death. That's not an accident either, because death in itself is not something that gives comfort. Yes, our death is an end to sin, and it's an entrance into eternal life. We confess that in Lord's Day 16. But there's still no comfort found in the very fact that someone has died. 
And the catechism focuses on giving us the comfort we need for when we're confronted by death. But even more, this Lord's Day is not only focused on the end of life here on earth, but it's also focused on giving us the comfort for the duration of our life. Also for when the weight of living in a broken and fallen world threatens to crush us. And about this comfort, I may preach to you the Word of God under the following theme and points. The believer confesses their comfort in the last things. And we're going to look at first the need for this comfort. Secondly, the content of this comfort. And finally, the result of this comfort. So there's the need, the content, and the result of this comfort. Now, while Lord's Day 22 may not speak about death or even speak about anything negative at all, it's not hard to read between the lines and see that such things are very real. After all, if they didn't exist, then there'd be no need for the comfort that we confess here. But the fact that suffering and death are very real comes out in both question and answers that we have here in Lord's Day 22. If you look at question and answer 58... It says that already now, I feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. That's a beautiful thing. But it does say that it's only a beginning. Meaning that there is a greater and better joy that is still in store for the believer. While they have the beginning already at this point, it's not complete yet. And the truth is that it's not going to be complete on this side of eternity. Instead, the reality is that as long as we are in this world, we will constantly experience the brokenness of life in many different ways. The Apostle Paul is very realistic about this brokenness in the words of our scripture reading. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You can see here that there's a tension. Things in this life are difficult. We're afflicted. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. Not to the fullest level, not to the extreme measure. But these things are happening. We face the attacks of our sworn enemies every day again. We are surrounded and we are hounded by temptations all the days of our life. And daily we have to fight against sin. And so often it seems that no matter how hard we fight, that sin just doesn't go away. So afflicted constantly perplexed. And then those around us in the world don't make life any easier. Instead, they often make life worse. You don't have to look hard to see how Western culture becomes more and more anti-Christian in the ethics and the values that it promotes. It's something we are experiencing even more so here in Alberta, perhaps, than the rest of the country as our freedom of religion is increasingly coming under attack. So yes, we confess that already today we have the beginning of eternal joy. 
But how often isn't it that this joy is overshadowed by the suffering we have to endure? Truly, this life really is no more than a constant death. Again, Paul describes that even further in our scripture reading when he says in chapter 4, verse 16, that our outer self is wasting away. As we go through life, the body begins to break down. As we get older, we don't have the same capabilities that we once did. Our body doesn't function the way it used to. Our mind slows down. And eventually, this life, which is no more than a constant death, it ends exactly with that. Death. Answer 57 indirectly draws our attention to this fact when it speaks about what happens immediately after this life. It means that this life is not something that goes on forever. This life comes to an end at God's ordained time. The tent that is our earthly home is destroyed as our body is laid into the ground and it returns to the dust from which it was taken. The tent. That's how Paul speaks about our body in 2 Corinthians 5. And we know about tents. We know that a tent is a temporary shelter. It's not meant to be a home for a long time, just a short time. It's not something that's made to stand forever. It's made to be taken down and to move from place to place. Other places in Scripture compare man's life here on earth to the grass. We sang about that before the sermon in Psalm 90. Again, the grass, it's not permanent. It's something that's here today. Tomorrow it's gone. One day everything is green and alive. The next day it's brown and dying. Well, so it is with the life of a person here on earth. One day here, the next day gone. Not something permanent, only something temporary. And certainly these aren't pleasant things to be thinking about, congregation but it is the reality in which each one of us lives. Some of us here are younger. Perhaps we don't even think then about how short and temporary life actually is. We tend not to think about how much suffering life actually entails. But as you get older, you can't help but reflect on such matters. And eventually, no one can hide from it. Because as you stand around the grave, you are confronted head-on with reality. And it's at that point that every one of us especially cries out for comfort. We realize the horrible situation we are in because of sin, and that there is no way that we ourselves can escape the consequences of sin. And that's what it really comes down to, isn't it? The constant suffering that we endure here in life, the fact that our life here on earth is going to come to an end, it's all because of sin. 
Sin causes brokenness in every area of life, and the final result of sin is that each person dies. Lord's Day 22 doesn't mention those things explicitly, but when you put the pieces together, there's more than enough to direct our attention to the reality of suffering and death. And as we consider these matters, and over the course of life as we experience these things for ourselves, then we're left craving comfort. And the joy of the gospel is that there is comfort. There is comfort for each one of us to hold on to. And this comfort is not only something that applies in, off in the future, this is comfort that we can take to heart already today. The initial comfort that we have for this life is summarized for us in answer 58. We noted it earlier. There we confess that since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. And yes, it does seem like through all the afflictions and all the troubles we have to face, this joy is so often taken away. But we know for certain that it's not taken away. It's never taken away. Because regardless of what happens or regardless of what we have to face, there is something that can never be taken away from us. And that is the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Congregation, make no mistake about it. That one piece of knowledge changes everything. Consider what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. In verses 8 and 9, he just written about how they are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but not to the fullest measure. And he explains why that is in verse 10 when he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Paul himself was nothing more than a clay jar. He was a weak vessel whom God had chosen to proclaim the gospel. But it was knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ in his heart that provided Paul with the stability and confidence he needed to endure every bit of suffering and perplexity he had to face. Knowing Christ as his Lord and Savior, that gave Paul every bit of encouragement he needed for life. Knowing Jesus Christ, and we're speaking here about the knowledge of true faith, not just knowledge in our heads about Christ. Knowing Christ is actually the beginning of eternal life. That's what Christ says in John 17 verse 3. When you truly know your Savior, when you believe everything He's accomplished on your behalf, that gives a different perspective to all of life. As the Holy Spirit teaches us through Paul in chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. If you focus only with your human eyes, then yes, it's very easy to be discouraged be very pessimistic. But when we live by faith, that completely flips everything around. For when we live and walk by faith, then we also believe that we're being renewed each day. Chapter 4, verse 16. 
even though we are facing the breakdown of our bodies and our lives and we see brokenness all around us, there's something happening to each one of us internally and that helps us to focus not just on the small details, but to look at the whole big picture. And here, brothers and sisters, we can see why these two articles of our faith are placed in the section of the Apostles' Creed that deals with God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. Because it's the Spirit who works in our hearts the faith by which we are directed to Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit who's busy in us, renewing us day by day, helping us to live by faith and not by sight. The Spirit is the one who works in us every day so that in this life of sorrows, we do in fact have the beginning of eternal joy. By the work of God, the Holy Spirit, our attention is drawn away from the horrible reality of suffering and is placed fully on the God who says, I am making everything new. The Spirit helps us to see that this life of constant death is not something permanent, but it's something light and momentary. Perhaps you've heard it said before that we can live in the joy of faith. What exactly does that mean? Living in the joy of faith, it's not something that's meant to be abstract. It's not something meant to be philosophical. It's a very real, very practical way of life. It's the beginning of the eternal joy that God gives to each one of His people who cling to Christ in faith. The Spirit helps them to live each day in the full expectation that God has something far greater planned for them than the trouble and the misery that they experience daily. The comfort that God gives us is something that also applies to the end of life here on earth, whether that's our own life or the life of a loved one. Many if not all of us, have experienced death in our close circle of family or friends, whether that loss was recent or even some time ago. We're familiar with the grief that comes with death. And at times of death, you'll often hear the prayer that those who are grieving would receive the comfort that comes from knowing the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Well, as you can see from the passage we read earlier, the comfort of these two things is both beautiful and it is powerful. Our earthly tent, our body, or the earthly tent of a loved one or a friend, it's eventually destroyed by death. It's not a nice sight at all. But then in contrast, God tells us in His Word about a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And the Catechism says in answer 57 that immediately after this life, our soul is taken to be with Christ. So what that means, brothers and sisters, is that there is no breaking of the fellowship that God has with His child. The believer who closes their eyes in death opens them immediately to the glory of eternity. God points us to the fact that in spite of what we see with our physical eyes, death is not the end. Death does not have the final say. Yes, death hurts. 
Yes, death breaks the fellowship that we have with the person here on earth. But it doesn't break the fellowship that God has with them. And as we live by faith and not by sight, we have the full comfort that one day there will be a reunion. For just as the mortal body is a tent, a temporary dwelling place, so the grave, it's now only a temporary resting place for the body. The grave is not the final home. For we also confess that when Christ returns, He will by His power raise our bodies and reunite that glorified, resurrected body with our soul. When Christ returns at the end of world history, there will be a complete and a perfect restoration of all things. We'll be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, that glorious body like Christ's glorious body. It'll be a body that's free from sin, a body that's free from weakness in every way. We will be whole once again. And not only will we be whole or complete, we'll be raised in perfection. This flesh, which now constantly goes against the will of God, this flesh subject to sin, filled with sin, it will be raised without sin of any kind. This flesh, the third of our sworn enemies, it will no longer be something that we have to fight against. It will have returned to dust, but then recreated by the Spirit of God, raised by the power of Jesus Christ, it will be even greater than what God created in the beginning. That is the comfort that God gives to us as we are confronted by the reality of death. It is not the end. Death has been conquered by Jesus Christ. He holds all power over death and the grave. Paul speaks about this in chapter 4, verse 14, where he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. There's something we really have to notice about that passage. In that passage we read together, consider how often Paul uses that word knowing, or we know. It's at least three times. And that is part of living by faith. Having that certain knowledge that everything that God reveals to us in His Word is also meant for us, not just for everyone else. You recognize here part of the definition for true faith we confess in Lord's Day 7. And it's important language because we don't live in the hope of the resurrection of the body. We live with the comfort of knowing with certainty that God will raise our body and He will reunite that glorified body with our soul. And when this happens, when our Lord returns and raises us all from the dead, then eternity will truly begin as we live in His presence. Eternal life on the new heavens and the new earth. Things are not going to be the same as we see them today. They'll be different. The old order of things will have passed away. All manner of wickedness cast into the lake of fire. And the dwelling of God will be with His people. That new life is described so beautifully in Revelation 21. But one thing we can especially note is what John writes there in verse 22. 
and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So not only are we just going to live for eternity, body and soul, we will do so in the very presence of God. There will not be any distance or separation between God and his people any longer. Verse John 3 says, we will see him as he is. And that will not just happen for a moment, that will happen for all of eternity. That barrier caused by sin, it will be fully removed in every possible way so that we can dwell in the presence of God and enjoy fellowship with him forever. That's something we can hardly begin to imagine right now. Truth is, regardless of what kind of image or picture you come up with in your mind about eternal life in the presence of God, you're still not coming close. The Catechism in Answer 58 speaks of this eternal blessedness as something that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, Paul simply describes it as an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The eternal glory in store for God's children far outweighs all the light and temporary suffering we have to endure on this earth. Right now, those troubles and those sorrows, they seem like such a heavy burden we have to bear. And there's no getting around the fact that these things do weigh down on us. There's no minimizing the suffering that we experience in this life. But in contrast to eternal glory, all these things are nothing. They're light. They're momentary. The glory in store for us is truly that spectacular. God has given humans a great amount of creativity. We can come up with all kinds of beautiful images and pictures in our head. We've also been given the beautiful gift of language to describe what we can see. But one thing we can never even begin to conceive of, one thing we can never even begin to describe, is how awesome, how magnificent, how astounding the eternal blessedness really is that God has prepared for us. It far surpasses our comprehension. It far exceeds anything we could ever grasp at this point. And it creates in us a longing for the time when it is revealed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet right now, today, we already have the beginning of that eternal joy. Why? How? Through Jesus Christ our Savior, we may come into the presence of God and we may have fellowship with Him. All because our mediator has taken away our sin and has clothed us in His righteousness. That's truly an astounding fact. What we have today already but as great and as wondrous as it really is, it's still only the beginning. Something far greater is waiting. And as we are confronted by the brokenness of life and how quickly life fades and ends, God gives to us the comfort that there is eternity in store for those who live by faith 
and not by sight. Truly, brothers and sisters, the comfort we have both for this life and for the life to come is such a rich gift of God's grace. But note how the Catechism, especially in answer 58, directs our attention to the reason we have this comfort. It says that there that this eternal blessedness that we cannot even begin to conceive of today is a blessedness in which to praise God forever. So the eternal blessedness that God has prepared for us is the perfect conditions for us to praise the Lord. It's the perfect circumstances for us to live eternally to the glory and honor of our triune God. So clearly the attention here is not on what we would enjoy, the kind of eternity we would prefer, or the things that we would like to do. It's all about being able to praise God both perfectly and forever. But the praise of God is not only something that it needs to be done in eternity. Since we now already have the beginning of eternal joy in our hearts, the praise of the Lord is something that can and must be done already in this life today. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 9 of our reading, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him already today, as we're living in the joy of faith, our goal must be one thing, and that is to serve the Lord our God and to praise Him in everything that we do. In that sense, you can say that there is continuity between this life and the next. And in light of the comfort that God so richly gives us, how can we do anything but praise Him? He's given us everything. He's given us the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, so that already today we have the one person who helps us to have the proper perspective on absolutely everything in this life. God has richly poured out His grace on us. He's given us the knowledge and the promise of a great and a glorious future, and He did so even though that is exactly what we threw away in the first place with our fall into sin. God so richly surrounds us with His love each day and with the promise that there is nothing in all creation that can ever separate us from His love, not even death. And therefore, brothers and sisters, knowing that comfort and believing that comfort, it forces each one of us to closely examine our lives and to ask, what is my goal today? As I live in the beginning of eternal joy, is it my goal to please myself, to bring glory to myself? Or does the beginning of this eternal joy drive each one of us to our knees in thankfulness, offering ourselves to God in gratitude for giving us the gift of salvation? Does this comfort cause us to sing the praises of our triune God out of thankfulness overflowing from the heart without end? Or is there something else that's more pressing? The only goal of life should be to serve the Lord in thankfulness. It's the single result of the comfort that God gives to His children. 
And when you truly live by faith, it's something we cannot help but do. Because God, the Holy Spirit, is working that process of renewal in you, just as he promised to do at your baptism. Also, as we heard again this afternoon. But that process is not yet complete. It means that right now we cannot serve God perfectly, and that also leads to frustration and groaning. So often because of the Spirit's work, we truly do want to serve the Lord, and we do want that to be the only goal of life. And yet we struggle, and we fail. But then again, we have the promise of God that not only is there the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, but the time is coming when we will have the perfect conditions to serve Him and to praise Him. Not only will we dwell with Him in all glory, free from hardship and persecution, we will be fully renewed. We won't face that daily battle against sin. We won't have any kind of desire to serve ourselves. The Spirit's work of sanctification will have reached its completion, and we will be perfectly renewed. And so we come to the end of our confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed. It began with God, the creating and preserving work of the Father. We confess the truth of our salvation, that it's been obtained by the suffering of Jesus Christ and His bitter and shameful death on the cross. And our confession ends with the glory that God has prepared for us and that awaits us with the return of His Son at the end of time. And you see the trajectory here, because everything we destroyed by sin will be restored in glory. We see where it all started, we see where it's all going, and it's all brought to completion by the active working of the triune God. It gives us every reason to praise Him now as we prepare for praising Him forever in eternity. Amen.